Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. This week, we are continuing our series on dealing with the world, how most Christians should learn these basic and essential lessons when we're engaging culture, okay, when we're engaging with the world. All right, so today's lesson is going to be on abortion, okay? And I've entitled it, Why Being Pro-Life is Great, okay? Because I think being pro-life and being a voice for the pro-life side is one of the greatest honors and responsibilities that we can have in this age, okay, and in this time that we're living in, all right? So I will say, I do think this is the fight of our times, all right? I think this is the fight of our times. And, you know, today in our culture, we talk a lot about slavery and the effects of slavery. And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was in high school and I was studying slavery, I was thinking, man, number one, I wish I could have been part of that, right? I wish I could have raised my voice um, and lent my weight to the battle that was raging over the issue of slavery, knowing everything that has happened because of it and seeing the Civil War, the Jim Crow era, and even the lingering remnants of slavery's effects today, you know, part of my heart was, Man, I wish um, I could have been involved in an issue like that. And then I, w- I was also thinking, wow, how come all the Christians weren't doing this? Right? How how were there Christians that were actually supporting slavery? Right? How were there Christians that were actually supporting slavery? And um, you know, when I was in college, um, it was either college or, or soon after college, I went to this talk where Lou Engel was talking about abortion. And um, he preached, you know, the most fiery message I'd ever heard on abortion. And at that time, I was kind of undecided on that issue. And, um, you know, he was challenging the church, you know, where's the moral outrage on the issue of abortion? And I remember thinking, wait a second, is this that important to God? And I remember I felt so convicted, not that I needed to stand up for the unborn on the issue of abortion, but I needed to have a conviction on this issue. I need to. I needed to know was this as important to God as this preacher was saying it was. And I remember I went back home and I prayed that night and I said, "Lord, you know, have I been silent on the issue of our times? You know, in the same way that Christians who were silent during the debate on slavery." am I doing the same thing? And I remember I just honestly prayed that before the Lord. And I felt like the Lord actually spoke to me. And I felt like he said, yes. I felt like he said, yes, you are being silent on this issue that's very important to my heart. And I remember that night I repented and I said, Lord, um, then I pray, give me a strong conviction on this. And um, since then I've determined that I'm going to be speaking out on this issue. And, um, you know, when I when I compare it now with slavery, um, Man, I I just have a conviction now that abortion is actually worse than slavery was, okay? Slavery was wrong. It was a serious oppression. It was, um, you know, it was something that I'm glad that Christians in the 19th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries um, really started to raise their voice about and, and, again, eventually abolished in the 19th century. I'm really glad that Christians did that. Um, But I'm convinced now it doesn't compare to abortion. Abortion, you know, is not just the oppression of millions of people. It is the outright killing of them, right? It's it's the murder of millions of the most innocent members of our society, which are the babies, okay? And um, the question is, will we raise our voices in this time? Okay, will we raise our voices? Will Christians raise their voices? Will they be able to discern how important this issue is to the heart of God? And will they raise their voices? Okay, and I think whether we win or lose on this issue, we're all going to be personally responsible to the Lord um, concerning this issue of how we were, you know, how we handled it. Okay, did we, could we discern what was right or wrong on this issue? And um, how did we lend our influence or our voice on this matter? Okay, so first of all, I think a lot of people don't understand um, how many how many babies are being killed here. Okay, so in America, the figures are about a million. 
okay? Um, it can be hard to get accurate abortion data. Um, a lot of the polls don't take into account some states like California. <laughs> like California's abortion data doesn't show up on a lot of the, um, you know, the, the data out there. So when you're putting together, you know, the stats, it, the best estimate that I have is there's about a million, maybe a, maybe a little bit less, but it's about a million legal abortions in the United States, okay? And that number has been generally going down, but in the last couple of years, it's actually gone, started to tick back up, all right? Um, but... Regardless, a million babies, There, there's nothing <laughs> that comes close to this, okay? There's nothing that comes close in terms of, you know, premature death. Death before, you know, um, old age and, and that kind of thing. Like, for example, um, a lot of people on the left will raise hell every time there is a story about somebody being killed with a gun, right? Every time somebody's killed with a gun, there is this accusation like, how can you do nothing? How can you let this continue to happen? You know, this holocaust of mass murders and gun murders. Well, by comparison, there are about 20,000 gun murders every year, okay? And that number has gone up significantly in recent years, okay? Before, it was closer to 10,000. Now it's about 20,000, so it is a lot worse. But it's nowhere close to abortion, okay? There's about 50 babies that are aborted for every person that is murdered with a gun today. Okay, so it's not even close, all right? It's not even close, and this is, you know, just America's stats. If we look worldwide, nothing comes close to abortion, okay? These are figures I, I pulled from you know, um, Prager U, in 2018, about 42 million people were killed by abortion worldwide in one year. In one year, 42 million killed. Think about it. You know, we think about, like, the Holocaust. That was terrible, okay? But that was 6 million, you know, 6 million Jews and other undesirables were killed, um, you know, over the course of, you know, five years, something like that, Okay. We're talking about 42 million babies killed a year. And by contrast, cancer worldwide kills about 8.2 million people. Smoking, right, kills 5 million people. AIDS kills 1.7 million people. It's no, it's nowhere close to abortion. If you add up all of those other reasons, it's not even half, <laughs> right? Like, abortion is... is, is it, it is the modern-day Holocaust, okay? If abortion is murder, okay? If abortion is murder, if it's a wrongful killing, then we're talking, like, it's the greatest Holocaust in the history of the world, and nothing comes close to it, all right? Nothing comes close to it. And this is, this is happening in our time, all right? So at the least, I think every person, and especially every Christian, should have the mentality of, I need to know whether this is actually wrong, Okay? Because it's the same thing. Like, you know, if you ever ever watched um, Band of Brothers, right? Band of Brothers is that HBO um, show about World War II. And in one of the later episodes of Band of Brothers, they discover one of the concentration camps. And the funny thing is you have this town that's really close by the, this concentration camp, and they have no idea this is going on, right? They have no idea that this atrocity is being committed right down the street from them. And it's the same idea here. Are we sticking our heads in the sand and just being like, uh, it's too controversial. I don't need to worry about that. And I want to say that that, that is wrong. Okay. That is wrong. I have, you know, I think it's somewhat understandable if you seriously investigate this issue and then you decide, okay, I've really investigated because I really want to know. And I've decided that I don't think abortion is wrong. Okay, I can have some more respect for that position. I still think it's very wrong. I, I think that's the wrong tack to take. Um, but I think that's more righteous than somebody who doesn't even investigate. It's like, well, I don't want to get involved with that. It's like, then you're responsible. If it is, in the eyes of God, a serious atrocity being committed, and you had the power to do something about it, and you chose to close your eyes and your ears and not get involved, I think there there's a worse judgment for that. That would be my guess, okay? Um, you need to investigate. This, this is the number one killer in the world right now. 
and it could be murder. And the question is, are, are you at least going to investigate? And that's my challenge, you know, for every person, but especially for every Christian, okay? And the reason why this is so important is because what we see in the Bible is that the shedding of innocent blood is one of the things that God is most upset about, all right? I think one of the problems as Christians that we tend to have is we tend to um, level all sins and make them about equal, right? And I understand why people do that. You know, there's some passages in like Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, you know, if you lust after a woman, it's as the sin of adultery. And if you have anger in your brother, it's as the sin of murder. And I think, you know, there is some teaching going on in the church where there is no such thing as severity of sin. All sins are equal and we're all equally evil. And I, the problem with that teaching is that it it does not do a good job of helping us to understand that God does see severity of sin. Okay, severity of sin absolutely matters. That is absolutely a biblical concept, okay? I understand why people teach, you know, against the severity of sin. What they want to do is say that there's nobody who can be considered righteous enough to deserve heaven, right? Therefore, you can't go, well, you know, I didn't commit any major sins in my life, therefore I deserve heaven. And that's true, okay? It's true. You cannot earn your way to heaven through just being a good person, okay? That's absolutely true. But when we level the playing field and we basically imply or we explicitly teach that all sins are equal in the sight of God, then what you're doing is you're making it impossible to discern what's important and what's not important, right? And just being honest, that's where a lot of Christians are. They have no idea what issues are really important, what issues are not really important, okay? So I, I want to try and clarify this. The shedding of innocent blood is a big deal, all right? When you read the Old Testament um, and the history of Israel, what you're going to see is that there are two sins in particular that really upset God, okay? there It's not that these are the only two sins, but these are two sins that they are held up again and again as reasons for why God is bringing judgment against Israel, okay? And the first one is idolatry, all right? When the um, Israelites start to worship other gods, God is really upset about this because he made covenant with them. And the the number one issue of the covenant was that they were going to worship him alone, okay? So when they worship other gods, that, that's spiritual adultery in God's sight, and that's a big deal. God really was upset about the worship of other gods, Okay. The second issue that God really rebukes, and to be clear, he rebukes a lot of different sins in the scriptures, but these are held up in a major way, okay? The second one is the shedding of innocent blood, okay? So I picked out a couple of passages, all right? Jeremiah 32, 35 says, they built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. Okay, so what, what God is communicating here through Jeremiah is that this is so unbelievable, right, that they would sacrifice their sons and daughters to Moloch, all right? The shedding of innocent blood is, is held up several times, okay? I also have Second Kings 24.2. It says, The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. Okay. Again, in Christianity, sometimes we have this idea that you know God it oh it will always forgive. All you have to do is say sorry. All you have to do is say sorry, and then He'll forgive you. And I'm sorry, that's simply not true. Okay, that is simply not true. God is very merciful. He is slow to anger. He is often willing to forgive. All right. But what you're going to see several times in the scriptures is that sometimes people will repent and God will not forgive because their sin was so great. Their sin was so great it demands um, it demands judgment. All right. And this is one of those issues. Okay, this is one of those issues. You can't this isn't just a hey, I'm sorry. And isn't that the way we act also? You know, like if somebody, you know, steals a candy from you and they go, "Hey, I'm sorry about that." Oh, we're more liable to forgive. But, you know, if they 
murder your son. And they go, oh, sorry about that. You're not, it's not so easy to forgive. Like that, you can't just get away <laughs> with, oh, sorry, right? Like God's the same way. It works pretty much the same way, all right? And what the Lord is pointing out here is that the shedding of the innocent blood is not something that's so easy to forgive. This is a big deal to the Lord, okay? And abortion is the exact same thing, okay? It is shedding innocent blood, all right? This is babies who do not deserve to be killed being killed, all right? Not just a couple of them, a lot of them all over the place, okay? And I think big, a big problem here is the reason why so much of the church is so callous is issues because there is this underemphasis and sometimes the outright teaching against the fear of the Lord, okay? The fear of the Lord is recognizing that God judges and that he's to be feared, okay? And this is really important, and that's because we're living in an age where there's such an overemphasis on the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the love of God. And a lot of the church does not understand a lot of that emphasis comes from a humanist influence, okay? It comes from the influence of our culture. You know, like if you talk to the average person today, especially the average, you know, hardcore atheist or something like that, and you, you talk about why it's right for God to judge people, that's something atheists, you know, and, and many people today do not agree with. They don't understand, you know. No, that's never right for God to kill a person, for God to cause a person to suffer, for God to bring an earthquake or something like that. That, you know, that whole idea is um, so alien to many people today because of all the humanist values and teachings today, all right? And that has seeped into the church such that much of the church doesn't even teach that today right? That it's right for God to judge and that he judges the nations. And um, that's a good sign. The church has to emphasize the fear of the Lord again, okay? That the Lord does continue to judge, that he does send earthquakes, that he does allow other nations to conquer nations that um, get steeped in sin. God does allow this, and we should understand that God absolutely will judge our nation for this issue, all right? I think it's very clear that he will judge our nation for this issue, all right? If we continue to allow the shedding of innocent blood, there will be a judgment. And I think the best way to understand, you know, slavery um, and the Civil War is that the Civil War was judgment against our nation for being so slow to abolish slavery when the Lord commanded, when the Lord wanted it done. Our nation resisted, and because of that, we had to fight the Civil War. And by the way, Abraham Lincoln was very aware of that. Okay, in his second inaugural address, he says that explicitly that this civil war that we're fighting is judgment from the Lord. Okay, and that was something that um, many Christians understood in previous generations, but our generation um, does not understand very well because of the teaching you know that's become popular today. Very little emphasis of the fear of the Lord. But the truth is, the more we fear the Lord, the more motivation we're going to have to fight in this battle, because we understand there's consequences if we lose this battle, okay? If we lose this battle, our nation is going to undergo greater judgment, and we Christians, we are going to share in that judgment, okay? Sometimes we have this mentality of, oh, you know, God judges nations, but, you know, that's he judges the wicked in the nations, and, and the righteous in the nations, they don't suffer, he protects them, and he blesses them in the midst of the judgment of the nations, and is there some truth to that? Yeah, there is some truth to that. Okay, in the judgment of, you know, in the Exodus, God made a distinction between the land of Goshen where his people lived and where the Egyptians were elsewhere. Um, but the truth is, you, the righteous suffer also. They just might suffer less. Okay? And the reason, you know, you see this multiple times, but the, the best example is Jeremiah. Okay? Jeremiah was righteous in his generation. He warned the nation of Judah over and over what would happen if they did not repent. Um, and he was delivered from the Lord, right, um, so that he did not share in the worst parts of the judgment that came upon the nation, and yet he obviously went through major hardship. He was persecuted um, for his take, for standing for righteousness. He was persecuted by his own people, and then when the judgment came, he wrote the book of Lamentations, right? He was lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem because he suffered, right? It's Seeing the nation that you love go through major suffering, of course he shared in some of that suffering, okay? So we should understand we are going to share in the judgment or, judgment of our nation, okay? It will become difficult. It will become hard. I, if I had to guess, I believe we're already going to go, th we, we're going to go through some judgment, okay? I think 
it could be really bad or it could be not as bad depending on how you know the future goes here um, but I would say that there my guess is that there has already been a judgment stored up for our nation because of this issue okay there's other issues too I'm not saying this is the only issue but I do think this is the worst issue okay I do think this is the worst issue all right all right, now we're going to move on to understanding the issue of abortion specifically. Okay, what abortion is at its core, at its root, it is dehumanization. Okay, it's the same issue of slavery. There's incredible parallels between slavery and abortion. Okay, because in slavery, what happened was that we were dehumanizing Africans. Okay, we were considering them not full people. All right, and that same thing is what's happening to babies today. All right, and the, argue, the way the argument goes is that a baby who's in the womb is not a full person yet. Okay, there's a dehumanization of those people. Okay, I, I believe they're people because when you, can, when you dehumanize another person, then you make it justifiable to do whatever you want to them. All right, and that's what happened in slavery. We dehumanized Africans. We said they're not fully people so that we could justify enslaving them generationally. Right? We enslave them, we enslave their children, and they're Africans. This is their purpose in life, is to be slaves. Right? Something like that. And um, the same thing has happened to babies today. Okay? What I want to show is that there is, a, there is a, a history of this. Okay? So in the times of slavery, I, wanna, uh, I pulled some quotes so that we can understand the way that some people thought about slaves. Okay? So George Hamill, in 1862, said this, I never want to see the day when a Negro is put on an equality with a white person. There's too many free niggers now to suit me, let alone having four millions. Okay? Look at the dehumanization, the way that he is thinking about Africans, right? He never wants to see them held as equal to white people, all right? And there's too many free Negroes, okay? Like the way that they're talking about it, it's dehumanizing, okay? Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy, Okay, he referred to the Confederate government like this. This is a quote. He says, quote, Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery is his natural and normal condition. Okay, that was in 1861. That's the way many people thought about it, that the, the, the true place for the Negro was below white people, that there was some kind of hierarchy, okay, and created order, and that white people were at the top, Okay, and the Negro was rightfully under them. They were made to be slaves. Okay, and the vice president of the Confederacy is saying this is the purpose of the Confederate government, right, is to uphold that order. Okay, that is a type of dehumanization. All right, we see this in other places in history. Okay, notably in the Nazi treatment of the Jews. Okay, this is this is jo Joseph um, Goebbels, who was the, um, you know, the, the, PR person for the Nazi regime. Okay, he handled, you know, a lot of the public relations and the media communication. He said this: "It's necessary to exterminate these Jews like rats once and for all." In Germany, thank God, we've already taken care of that. I hope that the world will follow this example. All right, that that type of language of likening Jews to rats was very common in Nazi Germany. You're going to see lots of different quotes and this idea that we need to exterminate them. They're, they bring plague. They bring disease. They bring all this stuff, right? The, the implication of all this, they're not human. We don't have to treat them like humans. We could treat them like rats. We should treat them like rats, okay? In the Nuremberg trials, um, they, they um, tried all the, the doctors, okay, the Nazi doctors, Okay, because they were running all these experiments on the Jews, like these twisted, horrible experiments. And um, the lawyer was a man named Telfer Taylor, the prosecutor. Okay, in his opening statement, he said this quote, this is 1948. He said, the defendants in this case, speaking about the Nazi doctors, are charged with murders, tortures, and other atrocities committed in the name of medical science. The victims of these crimes are numbered in the hundreds of thousands. To their murderers, these wretched people were not individuals at all. They came in wholesale lots and were treated worse than animals. Okay? So the idea here is that these Nazi doctors that were committing these, uh, these atrocious medical experiments on Jews, they didn't see them as people. Right? They saw them as animals. Okay? And that justified them being able to do whatever they want. And so in the name of medical science, they were doing all this. This is not dissimilar to what's going on with abortion, 
right? When we talk about abortion today, we're using words, you know, like, um, you know, reproductive care, <laughs> you know, like we're using words like family planning, right? We're using words, you know, Planned Parenthood, all this kind of stuff. Like, this is not medicine. This is not medicine. It is not medicine when we're talking about how to kill babies, okay? That's not medicine. That, that is the same kind of rationale. That's the same kind of argument that the Nazi used when they were talking about the Jews and, and the way that they justified treating the Jews. And that is exactly what's going on with babies now, where we're treating them like they're not human, they're not people, right? And so to dispose of them is, is medicine, it's so sick and twisted, all right? When we're talking about abortion, the only issue, the only issue that matters is the question, when does life begin? That's the only issue that matters, all right? And the reason is because when we're talking about abortion, people try and confuse the issue all the time, all right? They try and confuse the issue. And we're going to talk about some of those issues, but we should understand this. The only issue that matters is when does life or personhood begin? Because that's the debate, all right? The debate centers around that issue. If a baby is a person, then you don't have the right to kill the person. It's the same thing of like, you know, does anybody make the argument today that a mother has the right to kill her one-year-old baby? No, of course not. Because we all recognize that that baby is a person. So the only question that matters is when does that personhood get conferred upon the baby, okay? Now, we should understand on the left, there is no clear consensus. There's no clear consensus, okay, on the left, okay? Some are going to say, well, you know, maybe at 12 weeks, you know, maybe at six weeks. You know, there are studies that say, you know, babies can start to feel pain maybe around, you know, 10 weeks, so somewhere around 12 weeks, something like that. So maybe they're a person then. Um, you know, some they're not viable outside the womb before, you know, 12, 16 weeks. So, you know, they're, maybe that's when they become a person. Everybody on the left is guessing because there is no logical point after conception, okay? The clear, the clear time when life begins is conception. After that, the problem is that any of those arguments that you make, if you make the argument that, you know, they become a person when they're viable outside the womb, okay? When they can live without the mother, all right? The, the problem with all of those arguments is that those same arguments can be applied to adults, okay? Ben Shapiro does a really good job making this case. Um, you know, he talks about if a, you know, if you're going to say, okay, viability is the standard of personhood, well, then there's a problem because you have many adults who have pacemakers or other artificial aids that they couldn't live without, and if they didn't have, they're not viable on their own without extra help, all right? So you can always make that case. And by the way, this is the same case the Nazis made, right? It's the same case. The Nazis made the case that the old and the, you know, the feeble, all these, they were undesirable society. They weren't benefiting society. They were a net drag on society, and therefore, they justified killing them. It's the same argument that the Nazis used to kill many of these undesirables, right? And that's the argument that the left is using when they say, you know, well, the baby can't, you know, survive on its own without the mother's help, therefore it's not a person. No, there's no logical reason. That doesn't make any logical sense, okay? And it's the same thing for, for all these other issues, okay? Um, if, if somebody's in a coma, do we have the right to put them away? They're not conscious. They're not sentient, Right, that's the way that many people will argue. If you know the baby's not conscious, well, neither is a person in a coma, neither person who's sleeping, <laughs> momentary, momentarily not conscious, right? And they say, well, he's good, but he's going to wake up, right? The baby is in the same position. The baby is going to wake up. It is, you know, if biological processes are allowed to continue, that baby is going to wake up. The person in a coma, you know, is in a different place. Like, if, but if we know the person in a coma will wake up, if there's confidence in that. Then, yeah, we're not going to kill the person in a coma. It's, if it's for the same exact reason. That person has a right to life. We don't have the right to end their life, okay? And I want you to see where this mentality goes. There's a famous quote from Ralph Northam, who at the time, and this is in 2019, he was the governor of Virginia. This is his quote. He said this, There may be a fetus that's non-viable, 
okay? And the infant would be delivered, the infant would be kept comfortable, the infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother, okay? So what Ralph Northam is, is talking about here, he's talking about abortion after birth, okay? He's talking about abortion after birth, okay? And in this case, he's talking about babies that are potentially non-viable, all right? But the problem here is this is such a slippery slope, okay? When I, um, in my first pregnancy, um, to be clear, my wife was pregnant, but in our first pregnancy, um, they ran a test on our baby, and they, they told us that there was a 10% chance that the baby would have Down syndrome, okay? And when they told us that, they started to imply heavily that we should consider um, abortion. And um, that's what starts to happen, right? Like, okay, non-viable, all right, well, yeah, we, we should kill the kid. But what if they're, what if they're 80% non-viable? What if they're 60% non-viable? Meaning, what if there's a, a, a chance that something could be wrong with the baby? You know, there's all of these different things that get in, get into your thinking when you start to think like this, right? Because you stop thinking about it as a person. You stop thinking about the baby as a person. And you start thinking about it as a thing. It's not really a person yet. You have the you have the choice of whether, you know, you want to end, you know, this thing's potential life. You know, that's how you how they start to think about it, okay? And what we should understand is that, you know, in the Democratic Party today, really the de facto position for the entire party is that life, you know, personhood is, is extended at, at birth, okay? That's where the Democrats have voted in the past couple abortion bills. They've all protected the right to kill the baby until birth, okay? I just want to say this is a very radical position, okay? This is more radical than almost all the countries in Europe, okay? This is a super radical position, but this has become the de facto position of, of the left, okay, of the Democratic Party, all right? It is incredibly radical, and um, and it's gross, okay? There's nothing that magically confers personhood on the baby, okay, just because they're born, all right? That baby, it's the same baby when they're in the womb, all right? And when they come out, the only difference is one's inside and one's outside, <laughs> Right, but it's the same baby in there. All right, all right. Now let's let's get into some of these you know co these rebuttal arguments that get thrown at pro-life people all the time. Okay, you know the big one is what about rape or mother endangerment? Okay, what about in cases of rape, the mother's rape? And uh, I think we can all understand the rationality of this, right? The idea is, you know, if a mother's raped, she didn't choose to have a baby, and now she can't raise the baby with the rapist, you know, now you're going to put her in a situation where she has to take care of a child that she doesn't want, and the father is somebody who traumatically abused her, right? And I think we can all have compassion for that, all right? Um, so there's a couple issues here, all right? The first is I would be personally in support of bills that would you know, ban abortion, abolish abortion, except in the cases of rape or mother endangerment, okay? And the reason is because those cases of rape and mother endangerment are fringe cases, okay? We're talking about less than 1% of abortions, all right? 99% of abortions are elective abortions, okay? They're not issues of rape or mother endangerment, nothing like that. It's that the mom or the parents don't want the baby, okay? They don't want it, that's it, okay? So, if we passed bills that abolished abortion in various states, except in the case of rape or mother endangerment, we would eliminate 99% of abortions. Okay, that is a huge step in the right direction. Okay, so I'm fine with passing those types of bills because it's expedient. All right, that's going to eliminate the vast majority of abortion cases, which is a good thing. Okay, um, but if we're talking about it on an absolute moral level, well, the issue is this. Just because a child is the product of rape doesn't mean that we have the right to kill it. Okay, it's a person. Again, the issue is, is it a person or not? If it's a person, then we don't have the right to kill it. Okay, even if it's born in these circumstances. All right? These are absolutely the types of conditions and cases where I 100% support the government um, and people helping the mother in these cases. Okay? Um, I think all Christians should be open and willing to adopt. And by the way, 
Christians generally are. Okay, there there are way more parents that want to adopt today than there are babies available for adoption. All right. So these are absolute cases where we should be helping mothers in this type of situation if they've been raped. Um, absolutely, we should be helping to take care of the baby. And I am not opposed to the government helping out mothers in this in this type of case. All right. I think that's, you know, I'm generally against socialism. All right. But these are the type of fringe cases where I'm actually in support. Other cases like in, in the case of the mentally unstable. All right. I think that is a good case where the government should help um, families um, dealing with that type of thing. And this is one of those cases. Okay. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about, is it right? Is it morally right to kill the baby? It's not. Okay. It's not. It's not morally because again, it's a person. All right. It, it, would it be right to murder one-year-old children? You know, if their moms, if their moms don't want them anymore and they were the product of rape, would we be okay passing bills saying yes, Mothers can kill their one-year-old babies. And the answer is none. No one would say that, right? No, None of us are okay with that, right? And that's because we all recognize that that baby is a person when they're one. The, this, the argument is the same, okay? The person, the baby's a person um, at conception, I believe, all right? Okay, and now the issue with mother endangerment. Um, now, there's a lot of... Uh, I've heard medical professionals say that that is a thing of the past, meaning there's almost never... I, I've, I've heard argument... I've heard doctors say that today, there's never a case where the mother is is actually endangered in having the baby, okay? I've heard medical professionals say that. Now, personally, I'm not a medical professional, so I don't know, okay? I would simply say this, that the Bible does make a distinction... Um, about preserving life, okay? So in the case where there is a true case of mother endangerment, um, I think it's permissible to abort the baby, okay? Because again, we're saving life. We're prioritizing life, especially in those cases where it's like, hey, if you try and have the baby, you know, the mother won't survive and the baby might not survive either. But if we abort the baby, the mother will for sure survive and the baby will die. I I think that's permissible, okay? I think there are permissible cases, um, especially when we're talking about historically, where it's okay to abort the baby to save the life of the mother, all right? I think that's fine. And again, we're talking, like, uh, in the mother endangerment cases, it might be 0%, okay? It might be that never is actually a thing. And um, and it might be, you know, at the high end, maybe it's point, you know, 1%. Of, of babies or, you know, 0.1% of abortions. We're talking about extremely fringe numbers. And that's what we should keep in mind with this argument. This argument is intended to, it's a red herring argument, to send you off on a wild goose, cho- goose chase to avoid the real heart of the matter. Okay. The real heart of the matter is that 99% of abortions are, don't deal with rape or mother endangerment. Okay. So I would always turn around and be like, if somebody was saying like, what about rape or, or mother endangerment? I would say, well, would you support the abolition of abortion in the case of non-rape or non-mother endangerment? Okay. Because let's talk about those 99%. Let's not talk about the fringe cases because you're just trying to throw us off from the main topic. Okay. That's generally what this rebuttal argument does. It tries to derail the entire discussion. Okay. Um, the second big argument that you're going to hear all the time is that it's a woman's right to choose. Okay, it's a woman's right to choose. Now, I would say this. This is an extremely dishonest argument. It's extremely dishonest, okay? Because what it try, what this argument tries to do is it tries to sidestep the main issue, okay? It makes, it makes the implicit, sometimes it's explicit, but it makes the implicit argument that what this issue about is that men, conservative men, are trying to control women, and they just want to control women, all right? And that is 100% dishonest. It's 100% dishonest, okay? Because anybody on the pro-choice side, they know what the pro-life argument is, okay? It's embedded in the name, pro-life, all right? We believe the baby is a person, and we're trying to save that person's life. That's what the pro-life argument is, Okay, so when it becomes, no, you're just, you just want to control women, that's your real motivation, and you don't care about the baby, you just care about, you know, you just care about controlling the, the woman or something like that. It's so dishonest. It's gross. It's a gross argument. It's a gross, dishonest argument, all right? It, it, because it, 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 and then it naturally implies that the baby, the fetus, is not a person. Okay, that's the implication. So you should always push back and be like, okay, well, when does the baby become a person? And on what grounds? That should always be the the, the rebuttal argument because you're bringing it back to that core question, when does life begin? When does personhood begin? Okay, 
that is what the debate is about. You've got to bring it back to that because this argument, it, it attempts to sidestep that argument completely because there are no good arguments on the left, okay? There's no good arguments, all right, for when does life and personhood begin, all right? Um, and another way to tell that this is this argument is total garbage is what happened with the COVID-19 vaccines, right? This idea that the reason why I'm pro-choice is because I believe in a person's right to choose, a woman's right to choose. First of all, no one on the left can define what a woman is these days. It's anybody who wants to be a woman. So it has nothing to do with women's rights, okay? And it has nothing to do with you having the right of your own body because in the COVID-19 stuff, they were all about forcing you to take an injection <laughs> against your will. And if you didn't, you know, they were going to get you fired and not let you travel and not let you see loved ones in the hospital and all sorts of stuff. And it just shows how hollow that argument was from the beginning. That was never, that was never a real conviction. Okay. The truth is that if we're talking about people's rights to do right to do with their own body as they desire, the conservative position, the right is, is a much stronger champion of that position. Generally speaking. Okay. The entire argument here is that the fetus is a separate person it's not a, a woman does not have the right to murder their child okay and when you insist that you do based on this idea that i have the right to do what i want with my own body it's a dishonest argument okay everybody knows like if you have the right to cut your own hair but your baby is not just a collection of cells that you can just cut off it's not the same Right, that's what they're making. Right, they're saying I have the right to cut my own hair. I have the right to kill, you know, the fetus. I have the right to get an abortion because it's the same as cutting my hair. It's my, it's part of my body. I can do what I want with it. You know, it's not the same. You know, it's not the same. They know it's not the same. Okay, women who get abortions oftentimes have it's a traumatic experience for them. They have to go through counseling and therapy a lot of times. Why? Because they have to deal with the fact that they killed their own kid. They know in their own conscience they killed their child. Okay, you don't need therapy when you get your hair cut <laughs> okay nobody needs therapy for a haircut you know oh my gosh i feel this moral guilt over cutting my hair come on nobody feels that way but they do have abortion because we all understand it's not a haircut okay you're making a choice to end the life of your child all right and the and we need to get to the heart of the matter so what is the real heart of the matter the real heart of the matter is that you don't want your child you don't want your child okay when we're dealing with abortion, that is the issue, all right? Then why are you pregnant? Because you wanted sex, but you didn't want a baby, all right? And this is, this is you know, the real issue, okay? The real heart of the abortion issue is sexual freedom, all right? Abortion, the abortion industry undergirds sexual freedom. We, we cannot have sexual freedom if we, if we acknowledge the personhood of these babies, all right? There, there's this argument that you hear all the time, nobody chooses to have an unwanted pregnancy. That's a lie. Okay, that's a lie. Right? Because when you have sex, you know there's a chance that you can get pregnant. You know. Even if you use contraception, even if you use the pill, you know there's a chance. In fact, you know, the New York Times released a study back in like 2014 or something like that where they showed that you know, if you're sexually active for a 10-year period, no matter the type of contraception you use, chances are better than 50% that you will get pregnant, okay? If you use condoms, if you use birth control pill, if you use these things, but you're sexually active, you're regularly having sex over a 10-year period, chances are you are going to get pregnant, okay? That is the truth, okay? This idea that you, you can have sex and have a 0% chance of, of being pregnant, that's not that's not reality, all right? If you're sexually active, chances are, over time, you will get pregnant. And when you get pregnant, if you get pregnant, that, you, did, you made the choice to get pregnant, okay? This idea that sex is completely separate from reproduction is insanity, okay? Of course, having sex has to do with getting pregnant, of course. When you had sex, you made the choice, Okay, you made the choice to engage in the activity that makes people pregnant. Okay, and by the way, this is why God is so strict about sexual immorality. This is the reason. Okay, there was a lie that was told all through the 60s and 70s, right? Now that we have the pill, now that we have condoms, 
you know, nobody needs to have an unwanted pregnancy again. That's a, it's a big fat lie. All right. No, sex is still connected to pregnancy. It's, it's irretrievably connected. It's inexorably linked and tied together. You cannot separate them as much as we try to with technology and all this kind of stuff. No, sex means something. All right. It means something. It has a created order. And that's really the, the heart of this debate is, you know, that we're having in our times is, have we been designed by a creator? Is there a blueprint for life that we have to live according to certain rules and laws and ethics in order to thrive? Or as humans, do we get to do we get to determine our own right and wrong? That is the debate we're having. It's the debate of humanism, okay? And whenever our culture is running into these issues, it's it's the same thing. Right? As Christians, we say, hey, there's a right and a wrong way to live. There are things that are actually objectively evil and objectively right because we were created by a designer. And if we live according to those commands, then we will thrive. And that idea is offensive to humanists because they argue, no, there is no ultimate design. There's no ultimate creator. We're free to you know, construct right or wrong. Right Right or wrong morality is all social construction. It's all, it's all made by people. We determine what's right or wrong. Okay? And we can discern, we can, we can do whatever we want. All right. That is, this is the debate. It's humanism versus, you know, deism. And our culture is, is in, in increasingly running into these problems. This is what the whole transgender debate is about, right? Have you been designed by a creator to function a certain way? Or can you decide yourself, right? If you decide that you want to be a boy, you want to be a girl, if you decide my biology is something I, I, I want to change because I feel differently on the inside, okay? And to be clear, I'm not saying it's it's an issue of choice. I'm not saying that, you know, these people, they want to be a girl, they want to be a boy. I'm, I'm saying, have you been hard-coded with a DNA, you know, a biological structure that you have to live within that means? Or are you free to change that? And that's this is one of these issues, right? Are we free to have sex? Are we free to make sex something that's not sacred? Something that you could just do casually and for fun? Our our nation is engaging in the experiment now for the past, you know, since the 1960s, really, we've been engaging in this experiment. You know, can we just have sex something that's not sacred? Is it wrong to have sex with somebody you're not married to? And for the past 60 years, people have experimented with the answer saying, no, no, it's not wrong. It's fine. Okay, and abortion is one of the issues that we're running into. Well, what happened? What do you do with all the babies that are produced by casual sex? And we don't want the babies. So what we've done is we've dehumanized them and we've justified killing them because we don't want them, but we want the sex. Okay, and um, and by the way, abortion is just one of these issues. There's many other issues. Okay, we have a huge population decline right now all throughout the world, right? Because of this of this issue, all right, it's it's at its core, it's the same issue. Okay, there are other reasons and factors involved, but at its core is this issue, right? When children aren't taken care of by a mother and a father who are committed to them, committed to one another, and committed to them, what happens? They they grow up with these brokennesses in intimacy. They don't know how to have intimate relationships, and that becomes a perpetuating cycle. And that's what we're seeing is that more and more people don't know how to have intimate relationships and they don't know how to have marriages, and they don't know how to raise healthy children, and then their children grow up with major brokenness that never get healed and never get fixed, right? Because they don't know how to get fixed, right? All the psychology and all of that cannot fix God's created order, all right? And we're living this experiment right now, okay? And abortion is just the greatest sin issue because what we're actually doing is we're killing millions of babies every single year, and we're dehumanizing them. Okay, this is worse than slavery. It's worse than the Holocaust. It is worse than all of those things. All right? But we're so blinded today that we can't see it. All right? We can't see it. Because if we say that these babies are people, then we have to deal with the fact that we can't have sexual freedom. That we actually have to do things the conservative way, the traditional way. Right? Where we actually get married and stay committed right? And not be free to do whatever we want and get what whatever careers we want because we actually have to prioritize other people, all right? It, it, it is a radical, it would be a radical shift in our culture again 
because we'd have to recognize that all the progress, the so-called progress that we've made over the past you know, 40, 50 years has not been progress at all, all right? It's been a step backwards, and that is the conservative position. That's why we're trying to conserve right, the values of our past because we recognize that they're essential for thriving, okay? So I'll end our presentation with this, with this idea. Again, it, this is the fight of our times, all right? This is the fight of our times. I don't think any Christian can afford to be silent on this issue because we're all going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account all right, of how we were salt and light. Right? And I understand a lot of Christians, they, you know, they just want to stay out of this kind of stuff. But you can't stay out of this any more than, than when we look back at the 19th century, would it be okay for a Christian to be silent on the issue of slavery? Okay, When we look back to Nazi Germany, is it okay for Christians to be silent on the issues of the Holocaust? I say there's something worse than all of those things here today. And if we're silent on this, then we will answer to the Lord. All right? So this is my, my loving you know, challenge and call to the entire body of Christ. Let's raise our voices on this issue, even if it costs us something. Okay? If we suffer for the sake of doing what's right, then the Lord says we're blessed. Because okay? great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecute the prophets who came before you. Okay, that's his promise for us, and that's my encouragement, and, and my hope is that we will win on this issue, okay? The truth is, the church is the greatest force on the earth fighting against abortion, all right? It's because of courageous believers who have raised their voices, okay? The, the pro-life march that we have every year is one of the greatest marches that the media won't cover because it goes against their agenda for the most part, okay? Um but there are many believers that are raising their voices. And I just want to say, for all those believers that are doing that, God bless you, okay? You are being a light on one of the most important issues today. And I'm so thankful for the courageous church that's standing up, even when it costs them, even, you know, because they're not getting anything out of it, right? We're doing this to, to fight for the babies of, oftentimes, the people that we um, disagree with, the people that are that hate Christianity, that are fighting as God, but we're trying to defend their children, right? Their babies. We're trying to stand up for them. And a lot of times it's a thankless thing. A lot of these days, a lot of sidewalk counselors, people who go to abortion clinics and try and reason with the mothers to try to help them understand what the, the, the sin that they're committing, right? These people are being persecuted. I just read an article about how a guy was run over twice. His leg was broken. Um, but this is becoming more and more common, where pro-life voices are being persecuted. And I want to say, um, blessed are you, okay, for raising your voice on this issue in these times. All right. Okay. Hope that's helpful. God bless.